leading us in that worship. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Jude, and if you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we would love to receive that from you. For those visiting with us today, we're so glad you're here. We'd love to talk with you more about how you can be a part of this wonderful church body. And for those who have prayer needs that are desperate, be assured of our joining you in prayer. Contend earnestly. Maybe you picked up in the singing this morning, what's all this talk of fighting today? Battles and wars and rumors of wars. Well, because that's how the Bible describes the Christian life and living in this world. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And we come to the book of Jude and filed at the end of our New Testament is a brief letter that bears that name. Jude reads more like a postcard than a book, 25 verses, but boy, is it packed. And it was written by the Jude, he calls himself in verse one, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And so Jude was the half-brother of Jesus along with James. They're mentioned in Matthew 13, um, 58. And I find it interesting he didn't say, Jude, the brother of Jesus. Uh, No, I'm the doulos of of Jesus Christ. My half-brother is my Lord and Savior and the eternal Son of God. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 3, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So without being contentious, unloving, harsh, arrogant, overruling, overbearing, quarrelsome, or calling, um, our calling as followers of Christ is to contend, to stand, to insist on truth. In other words, there are truths for which we're to fight. And often we say, well, that's not a hill in which to die. And we say it too much. And we end up giving away the ranch in our effort to avoid conflict. We, I, this, is, this says contend, not complain. This says contend, not be contentious. To contend for the truth. So that may take place in your family. And the temptation is let's just gloss over truth and let's just all agree. And I'm all, I'm all for that kind of agreement but not when truth is slain in the streets. There needs to be a place in the Christian life where we say, I'm sorry, I cannot go there. The word of God says otherwise. I must give my allegiance to Christ. We're to be driven by a love that does not bend to sin, nor is blown away by the ever-changing winds of a rebellious world. We are not to be indecisive about our soul's trust or wishy-washy concerning what God has said in his scripture. There is no question that one of the greatest dangers the church faces and has ever faced is false teaching. It was true in Israel, you've heard me say before, the greatest enemy of Israel um, were, the, were not the, the, the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Philistines, the greatest enemy of Israel were the false prophets who stood in their gates and spoke lies to the detriment of God's people. Our calling is to fight for the faith found in Christ. 
So I would urge you in this message that you would, in your own mind, find a, find the line and let it be established by biblical truth. Find the line in your mar- mind and heart on where you stand. A fight which is not a physical campaign like the Crusades. Our calling is to contend in a spiritual battle for the souls of men and women. We understand that our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against ideas that are to be brought into conformity to Christ. So we need the message of Jude in our walk of faith. We need Jude in our walk with Jesus Christ. Uh, We need the message of Jude to be authoritative over our body, our church family. So let's dig into this small letter and just identify some fast facts that Jude was likely written in the late 60s of the first century before the fall of Jerusalem. Jude, who was the brother of James, and James was the half-brother of Jesus, as I mentioned, both of them were. Um, in Matthew 13, 55 is that reference. And the leader of the Jerusalem council, James was. Jude's uh, beginning here is similar to James's, if you'd look at James, the book of James. Although unlike James, he, he did not consider himself to be an apostle. We see Jude's humility in identifying as a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. And if you're a slave, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price and so totally surrendered. And you'll remember Jesus' brothers and his family often ridiculed him in his earthly ministry. They said, you know, he's out of his mind. He's, he's not quite with it. We'll just get him off the scene and avoid embarrassment. But now, after the resurrection, they understood that everything he said, everything he promised, everything he claimed was true. And indeed, he had risen from the dead. So I'd like to put my thoughts on several things this morning. First would be, if you're keeping notes, um, that every believer is called, loved, and kept for Jesus. Called, loved, and kept. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called, you are loved, and you are kept for God's glory. He says that in the next section of verse one, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This takes me back to a recent study that we've had in the book of Romans chapter eight, where we looked at the golden chain of redemption, the golden chain of salvation. Here it is again in different terms. Um, in Romans eight, Paul spoke of, of those in Christ being are are the ones who he foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. Here Jude uses the terms that God calls us, that he loves us, that he keeps us. And these verbs are in the passive. It's not something we do. It's not something where I called God. uh, I demanded that he loved me. uh, I, I demand that he keeps me. It's passive in the sense that God calls and God loves and God keeps And that is a comfort to us. So believer in Jesus Christ, you were called effectively. There was a point in time where the gospel intersected the issues of your heart and life and you were gloriously, miraculously, wonderfully converted by a work of the Spirit. And you repented of your sins, you saw Jesus for who he was, and you believed Like the Philippian jailer, he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and he was saved. It may have been while you were sitting in a pew. 
It may have been while you were sitting on a park bench. It may have been while you were driving on your commute. Imagine that. It may have been while you were riding a bus or an airplane or lying in your bed at night recounting truth in your life and that you only have one life and it will soon be passed. What are you trusting in as you look at a, a death and a sure judgment where you give an account of your life before God and if you do inventory of your heart and life and it's all based upon you and your good works and what you could put together, you come to see that as mighty flimsy and you need what Christ has done for you and you believed on him. We know not how God's saving grace to me he has made known nor why God would send Christ to redeem me for his own. You're loved by God, eternally by God, and kept. This is true security. (laughs) This is the security of the believer. It's not in our ability to hold it together. It's in God's loving care, not only to pull us out of the muck and mire of our sin, but to guide every step of our life. And his security means that those who are in my hand will never be plucked out. Look at the end of this letter. Verses 24 and 25. I often like to share this at the cemetery at a funeral. Now to him who is able to keep you from what? Stumbling, going AWOL. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever, amen. He's a God who keeps us, who loves us to the end. Jude begins and he concludes his letter by assuring the believer that God exerts his power to keep you to the end, to keep you from falling away from the faith. Other New Testament passages support this. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians, I'm sure that he who has begun a good work in you will continue that work until the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning that God is watching us, not only redeeming us, saving us, keeping us, loving us, but working in our lives to such a way that he will present us to himself So as we think of the saving power of God, what hope do we have of facing a sure and terrifying judgment? One reliable source put it this way. Simply believer, we respond, God has called me out of unbelief. Therefore, I know that he loves me with a particular electing love. Therefore, I know that he will keep me from falling. He will work in me that which is pleasing in his sight and present me with rejoicing before the throne of his glory. That is blessed assurance. To know the Lord means that our salvation can't be lost. And we think of exterior threats to that, but my biggest concern is my own heart. And even in that, he keeps me to the end. Notice secondly, an urgent, necessary, and timeless letter. Jews writing with passion. He, he says, beloved, um, he says in verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I have found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. There it is. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
He mentions beloved in verse 3. Believers are loved of the Lord. And the, the tense indicates that God placed his love on us in eternity past with results that continue in the presence, present and into the future. And from that blessed assurance in Jesus that every believer is given, and indeed it's God's desire that we experience in full measure, there is a, there's an assurance for the people of God that is wonderful and sweet, knowing that when we place our head on the pillow at night, that nothing separates us from our Savior. That when we breathe our last in this world, we go to be with him. That's not just something I think is, you know, a good thought to have. No, this is based on, on truth that God has given to us, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so Jude transitions here to a sense of urgency. He begins to talk about our duty to contend for the truth. We're not living in neutral ground. There's no neutrality in this world. The assured victory that we know in Christ is one that will be experienced through a fight, not with flesh and blood and weapons, but with spiritual weapons. That's why Paul ends in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I fought the good fight of faith. What does that mean? Is to the best of my ability, I sought to follow Christ and to speak the truth in his name and to contend earnestly for what God has given to his people. John Piper wrote, just because the brilliant commander-in-chief promises victory on the beaches doesn't mean the troops can throw their weapons overboard. The promise of victory assumes valor in battle. When God promises that his church will be kept from defeat, his purpose is not that we lay down our sword and go to lunch but that we pick up the sword of the Spirit and look confidently to God for the strength to fight and win. That means to live the Christian life. That means to speak the truth in love. That means as much as it depends upon me, I want to honor Christ in everything I do so that when others look at me, they see Him. That means to say, to say when, the, when the flow is going this way, that means for me to be able to say, I'm sorry, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I can't do that anymore. Whenever the promised security of God is used to justify going AWOL, we may suspect that there's a traitor in the ranks. So Jude says, very eager, I'm very eager to write this to you about our common salvation. What does it mean, common salvation? It means that our salvation is shared equally. That each of us have experienced basically the same thing, a repentance of our sins that we believe and trust in Jesus Christ, that our soul has been cleansed, that we've been adopted into God's forever family, that we've been declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven by faith in Christ alone. Every believer's birthright is the same. We've been redeemed. We've been plucked out. We've been saved. We've been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. We're destined for glory. He was, says, it was a necessity to write to you. This is important. It, it, it speaks of a compelling force as opposed to just a, a mere desire. To contend for the faith was, that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now we believe in a revealed truth. Our faith is not a leap in the dark. We say that often. 
It's not just, well, I have faith, because faith has become one of those useless words in our culture if it doesn't have definition. Our faith is built on what God has promised to us in his word, primarily through his son, Jesus Christ. We believe that he was who he said he was. We believe that by placing our faith in him, that we are forgiven and restored and receive God's eternal life. The, the revealed truth of our faith was not established in some committee room somewhere. It was revealed by God to his people through his son, Jesus Christ. Now we have people all the time spinning things loosely in our culture on how to find a moral way forward. Years ago, Ted Turner, who was a media mogul, owned the Atlanta Braves for a time, and he said, you know, I'm not looking for any big rewards. I'm not a religious person. I believe this life is all we have. I'm not doing what I'm doing to be rewarded in heaven or punished in hell. I'm doing it because I feel it's the right thing to do. Okay. But then he goes on to say, almost every religion talks about a savior coming. When you look in the mirror in the morning, when you're putting on your lipstick or shaving, you're looking at the Savior. Nobody else is going to save you but yourself. You know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, everybody gets killed. It's destruction. And you, have that, you hear things like that, and it sounds so swagger and on the cutting edge, but it's not new. People have been doing that from the beginning of time. I'm not interested in God's way. I'm not interested in revelation. I'm not interested in his word. I'm not interested in his exclusive claims. And I certainly don't want to have anything to do with his commandments, which was another thing Ted Turner said in his um, heyday, is he wanted to establish a contest where somebody could write a better code than the Ten Commandments and that uh, whoever won uh, would get a $100,000 gift. Oh, that'll help us. More human opinion. Contend for the faith, the body of truth that is summed up in Christ. Again, not complaining, not being contentious, but contending. And the idea behind that word is to struggle for, to contend for, to exercise great effort, to be willing to say in conversations that's just not right. What you're saying to me is directly opposite to what the scripture says about who Jesus is. There are not many ways to God. That's contending. That's urging. Give serious consideration to what, what you're trusting in, what you're, what you're listening to. And so when we think about this faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, what that refers to is primary doctrines of the Christian faith in which you reject any of them and you're no longer a Christian. It's what Christians have believed for millennium, two millennia anyway, that there is a God who has a son, that we are sinners, that we're in need of salvation, 
That salvation is through Christ alone. The Holy Spirit, God is a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he's infinite and he's eternal. There was never a time he wasn't. He's unchangeable in his being. He's wisdom and power and holiness and justice and goodness and truth. That's the God we're talking about. Not some old man that you can boss around and tell him to do what you want to do. That's not the God of the Bible. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the tragedy of our day is people yawn at that truth. That this salvation is what we need most. And I think what the reason we believe these things is not because, again, some committee got together and thought it'd be a good idea to believe these things, but we... We receive these things because they come to us through the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. You know, one of the reasons why we emphasize doctrine around here, doctrine, doctrine, doctrine guides your life. It it guided the the life of uh, the man at Psalm 1 because in verses 1 through 3, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on that day and night. And man, he's like a tree planted by the streams of water. And he's got foliage and fruit. Because his life is is tapped into the life-giving source of God himself and his word. The ungodly are not so. They're not. They, They blow around like the chaff in the wind. So beware of longing Beware of jealousies towards the things of this world. They don't last and they blow away and great is the fall. Great is the fall. So the reason we throw words around deliberately in our expositions like propitiation and atonement and predestination and foreknowledge and justification and sanctification and adoption the reason we you know, present these regularly in the gathering of the church, I like what Shane Pruitt said, if students can understand algebra, chemistry, geometry, biology, literature, physics, and history, they can understand depravity, Christology, justification, repentance, faith, sanctification, and the Great Commission. And you know, I think, I think if students that come up in this, this church and across the board, why many in the, their youth years, get bored with church or put off with church. There's no challenge to it. Let's keep the, let's keep the, the meat and, and the potatoes under lock and key and just give them Jesus only. <laughs> I'm all for that. But there's more to our faith than a, a shallow understanding of things. That's why the writer of Hebrews was inflamed when he said in chapter five, he says, by this time you ought to be teachers, but... Someone has to come back and to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You should have been advanced by now, but you're still in the ABCs of the faith. The truth, there is truth that we must contend for. There is truth worth dying for. I want to hold this up. I want you to know that the faith we embrace has a long line of martyrs. Men and women who gave their lives for the truth of who Jesus was, 
you know, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, she was, she was a professing Christian. And she slaughtered hundreds and hundreds of faithful pastors. And in Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's a story of per- Perpetua, a young widow of 26 with an infant child, and she was to be thrown into the wild beasts at Carthage for being a Christian. Her aged father urged on his knees for his sake to make some offering to the Roman gods. Just, just do it. You don't have to really mean it. Just offer an offering to the Roman gods. So frantic was his appeal that he even attempted to carry her from her cell. In so doing, he received a staggering blow from the prison guard to Perpetua. That blow was worse than martyrdom, but that was not the worst. Soon she had to give her baby the last kiss and throw her arms about her aged father for the last time. Her baby, she was leaving helpless, her father comfortless. Her heart was broken before the beast tore her body to shreds. And why did she make such sacrifice? (laughs) To be true to her savior. To be true to her savior. How quickly we just walk through this life with little regard to the cost of what Christ has called us to. And it's, I sound really cavalier up here preaching and trying to wax eloquent with these, with these demands. But I want you to know that has weighed on my heart this morning, on my life this week. What are we living for? What's our purpose in this world if not to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ? by the words that we say and the lives that we live. This is once for all delivered to the saints. This truth, this faith is once for all delivered to the saints. God, who who delivered it? God delivered it. It doesn't change. There's something refreshing when, when you think about what you believe in going back 2,000 years. And if you want to go back to the beginning with Moses and God's call of Israel, that's even greater still. Because I think all the Old Testament is about Jesus. There's something comforting with, wait, what I believe in, that aligns with faithful Christians from the very beginning. Rather than, well, we got started up in 1978. Get the point? It doesn't change. Christianity is not a changing message. Culture changes, hairdos, thank God, change. Clothing changes, so many other things change. But the message of Christ is the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I thought of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, for I delivered to you, he's he's saying this to the Corinthians, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. So what I'm preaching, I didn't cook it up somewhere in the wilderness. I received it through revelation that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that means he really died, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This faith once for all delivered to the saints. The reason we have a Bible is that the church recognize that God had spoken once for all through these writings 
and the canon was closed and every other claim to truth is now measured by what the scriptures say. So there's a faith that's been delivered. There's a faith that is worth contending for. There's a faith that's threatened constantly. Now let's move on to number three. And what I don't get to this week, I'll pick up and we'll keep moving. So number, thirdly, contending is essential for the ever-present danger of falling away. So this is really where we're getting to in Jude. There's a danger, friend, of falling away. That's, that's called apostasy. The, the, the New Testament warns us over and over again. It's, a, it, it's possible for you and I to have religious experiences. We can be baptized. We can go on mission trips. We can see the power of God move in a congregation, answered prayer, healing, changed lives. Remarkable things that come into the life of a local church. This, um, this past week, we've done this since 2005, so we have nearly 20 years of this. Our staff writes an annual letter, and we just, in our own words, give an account of what God's done in the last year. So we've got almost 20 years of that. It's such an encouraging thing to go back and to see what God does in the life of a local church. Let me tell you, being a pastor is not boring. You may think it is, like man, all you do is church. No, 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 it's, it's really, really a thrilling job to see how God moves and does things. Um, God loves a cheerful pastor, and pastors, uh, being a pastor is not a boring occupation. I'm reminded of that every year when, I, when we do the annual letter. And so when we think about, um, you know, falling away, the danger of falling away, one of the heartbreaks in ministry is apostasy. You can, you can see things that God does. You, you, you can hear uh, or, or, or witness answered prayer, healing, provision, and not be saved. Just look at Judas. For three years he saw and heard the Lord Jesus Christ and sold him in in a betrayal. Israel saw God part the Red Sea. Manna dropped from heaven and they died in the wilderness in unbelief. There's a danger of apostasy falling away. What does that mean? Well, you're in the ranks, and then one day you say, I don't like this anymore. I'm going to go do something else, and you leave. And the church is like, where'd you go? And the excuses vary, but the, the cause is the same. You've fallen away from the living God. You're no longer pursuing him. Can I repent and come back to him? Well, by all means. By all means. But you know what? In my experience, that's very rare. It's a very rare thing. And so the warning of apostasy, of falling away. Jesus said, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. In 2 Thessalonians 2, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will come unless the rebellion comes first, will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and many will fall away. Paul wrote to Timothy, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 
so that's a frightening thing to fall away from the living God. And it should influence what I watch and what I read and who I listen to. Not out of a sense of paranoia and fear, but out of a sense of I got to guard my soul because apostasy is a present danger. So he says in verse 4, look at verse 4. And I have these grandiose plans of getting to verse 16 and I don't know what, what I was thinking. I just don't know that. So verse four, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who per- perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These apostates crept in unnoticed and the idea here is a sinister and a secret creeping. The worst enemies of Christian doctrine are those who name the name of Christ. And just because someone names the name of Christ doesn't mean that they're faithful followers or even believers of Christ. This world is filled of apostate churches and apostate leaders who compromise the truth. And let me tell you where this comes to play for us. They compromise the truth at global levels, on global stages. And then when we contend for the truth, we're made to be the enemy. All under the banner of Christ. We see it in denominations that go uh, up apostate we see it in entire denominations and churches Paul said the worst enemies of Christian doctrine are those who name the name of Christ and in chapter 20 he says I know Paul writing in Acts 20 he says to the Ephesian elders on that beach scene where they weep and mourn and because he's leaving them he says I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock And from among your own selves, they will arise from within you. I call these people soakers. That's my term. They soak into the woodwork of a Christian fellowship. They soak into the woodwork of a church, a local church. They're duty bound. They establish themselves in the rank and file of the body as bulwarks, as faithful followers. But in time, they reveal who they really are. John MacArthur says, without question, the greatest threat to the church has always been false teaching. And so we're called to contend and to express concern and even say, you know, we just can't do that anymore. We can't buy that material anymore. We can't associate with that anymore. Not because we're wanting to be unloving, or difficult or contentious, but because our devotion to Christ is greater than any human allegiance we may know. In 2 Kings chapter 17, it's a, it's a massively important chapter because it gives an explanation of why Israel went into captivity. And it's all because they fell away from the living God and followed idols. 
So would you join me in this command from Jude to contend earnestly? I'm not talking about secondary applications of primary doctrines. That's why you have many denominations in the Christian faith where there's differences over how baptism is administered, there's difference, differences uh, on the details of the second coming of Christ. I'm not talking about that. Those are important in their place. I'm talking about what it means to be a Christian. What, what is the gospel? How do you regard the word of God? And may we contend earnestly until we see our Savior one of the joys I have um, as a pastor is, is to lead this body in the Lord's Supper. And we come back to what is our testimony, what is our story, and it's seen here at the table. And I want to ask the deacons to come forward.